Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 today. Go ahead and get your Bibles and Bible apps warmed up. And as you do, I'll go ahead and put a bug in your ear about next Sunday. Next Sunday, I want to encourage you to make sure, not that any of you would ever, ever be late for church, but, but if that were to happen, you would miss out next week, okay? We've got something really, uh, it, we're going to talk a lot about worship because we hit Revelation 4 and 5 and the whole uh, tenor of the book changes. And so we're going to do uh, some different things next week and I hope you're excited about it. It's going to be awesome and just want to encourage you to go ahead, make your plans to be here on time. And by on time, I don't mean you park your car on time, like in here, cu coffee in hand, whatever it is that you do, and uh, be ready to praise the Lord uh, and uh, to learn more uh, as the parts of Revelation that seem a little stranger to us today begin to, uh, we, we start working our way through those. All right, off we go. Uh, Moro Prosperi, he was a gold medalist runner, 1984 Olympic Games. So he'd proven he could run. I mean, he could run. I mean, distance running, gold medalist means you know how to run. You've done a lot of running in your life. And he decided to enter an ultra marathon race. And those of you who aren't familiar with those, that is often one marathon stacked upon another one and another one and another one to where you might run 200 miles, 300 miles in very, very extreme conditions. So for instance, there's one in Death Valley uh, during the summer uh, that's designed to see if you can pull it off. And this particular one was actually... Uh, in the Sahara Desert. Now, why people would choose to do this, I have no idea. I think to myself all the time uh, how to avoid running it for any reason, much less doing it in the middle of the Sahara when it's hot. Surface temperatures on the sand there can reach 185 degrees. And so he decides he's going to go run this race. He'd train by starting to run 25 miles a day is how he started to prepare for this. But he was used to dehydration. He knew how to take care of his body. And he had run so many miles that you would think that this guy couldn't, couldn't fail. I mean, that he, if anybody can do it, this guy's going to be able to do it. Well, he starts taking off, does fine. About day three, he's running in Morocco. And a sandstorm blows in as he's running. And so he continues to run. He was seventh place at the time. He didn't want to... Uh, the year that he ran this, there were about 140 participants. He's seventh, feeling pretty good about maybe being able to get toward the lead. So he doesn't want to fall back. And a lot of other people are saying, hey, stand, sandstorm's coming. Let's go ahead and uh, I'll pull over here and wait till that's gone. Then I'll keep running. He says, I can gain some ground here. I'm going to keep running. So he runs. And when the sandstorm blows through, uh, he's running and he realizes he's totally by himself. He thinks he's in first place. And off he's running, and he's running, and running, and running, only to realize after three more days that he had lost sight of the trail at some point and had been running somewhere, but not in the race. He was no longer on the trail. They find him. He has run 181 miles off course. He spends nine days. They spend nine days trying to find him. And when they finally do, he is alive, barely, but he's alive. And I thought to myself, I go, isn't it interesting how a person can think because of their experience running or because they think they're running on the right trail, that what they're doing is the right thing. And even so much that, hey, I can keep running, and yes, there's a sandstorm here, but I'm, I'm good at this. I'm a gold medalist in the spiritual games of life. So I don't really need to continue to pay that close of attention to the trail as I run. 
I'm going to run as though to win the prize, Paul says, and we'll justify it. Use that scripture probably in our minds. And I can do all things through Christ. It gives me strength and things like this. Not really paying attention to am I running on the right trail or not? Or did something happen that moved me off course? Today's letters, we did four churches last week. We've got three church letters this week. And the theme of these letters is kind of self-deception, if you will. The idea that the churches think that they're doing fine, but they're not. And maybe you know a church like that. You know a person like that. You, maybe, maybe you are that. You're a person that, that may think that their walk with God is growing. Or you may think that you're being faithful to God for X and Y reasons. I just want to invite you, as God does this morning, to take a look at your spiritual life and to really look at it. Because whether it's today or tomorrow or a year from now, there is a sandstorm coming. And the best thing that we can do to prepare for such an eventuality is to realize that when that comes, that the key part of it is to stay faithful. If there's a theme to Revelation, it's that, the endurance of the saints through trial. And God is inviting us now in the currents that we kind of find ourselves in. They're pushing against us and trying to take us off course to continue to be faithful. We tend to have a very inflated view of our own spirituality. We tend to have a deflated view of other people's spirituality. And so I welcome today's text as a wake-up call to our church, to me, to everybody gathered here to say, okay, God, show us the actual state of our hearts because we want to know. We want to know. And he says, thankfully, he says, I know your deeds. Remember that refrain from last week? I know your deeds. That means he knows the good stuff, the bad stuff, everything in between. The stuff that you think nobody knows about because you never told anybody about it. He knows that stuff too. So we're going to start uh, in Revelation chapter 3, read verses 1 to 3, his letter to the church at Sardis. Here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. There it is again. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will have come against you. The reputation of being alive, but you're dead. The reputation. Well, where would that come from? Others, I guess. You, other people seem to think you're alive, but I know your works, and I know you're dead. What a terrifying thought, in a way. Um, to, to, to think that people would point to you, or to me, or to the church we're in, or, or other people. And maybe, maybe to start, it's easier to kind of look at an example of that from somebody else's life. Uh, it's my favorite thing to do. If I can shift blame, I'd love to do that. So let's look at somebody else, and then we'll get around to ourselves, okay? Um, you know, if, if, if you think of some of the churches out there that are, oh, boy, that's, the Spirit's really moving there. What we mean is there's a lot of energy there, or we mean they're growing. And he, the, the irony is the church at Philadelphia is next, and he points this error out in, that, in, in talking to the church at Philadelphia. We'll get there in a second. Or think about somebody that... Um, you observe in their spiritual life, they seem to be very demonstrative in worship. So therefore, they must be very spiritual. 
Right? Those kind of fallacies in terms of how we assess the spirituality of people, or in, if you're a, you may be a recovering legalist like, like I am, maybe it's, hey, you know what, I go to church every week and these other people only go a third of the time, so I'm clearly a giant spiritually uh, because I seem to be able to do every week what other people only seem to be able to do occasionally. I must be. My, my walk with God must be good. Right? Now, it's not that any of the things that I mentioned are bad. It's not that. All I'm suggesting is, in fact, I think good faith probably has a lot of all of that in there. But boy, we get ourselves into trouble when we think that we can substitute outward signs for an actual integrity-filled walk with the Holy Spirit leading. For God to be active in the life of a person certainly will bear fruit on the outside, but where you start in assessing matters a lot. And so there are people who can, uh, oh, they, they, they look really good. You Maybe you see them on a red carpet or you, you see them walking by and you go, wow, that's a really attractive person, but you don't know they have pancreatic cancer terminally on the inside. You have the reputation, he says, of being awake, but you're actually kind of asleep. You are like, and this is the beauty of digging into the text a little deeper, is they had a reputation. They were known for being uh, taken by other cities on two key occasions, Sardis was. And in both cases, it was because the watchmen were not watching man. They fell asleep. And so the whole city fell as people climbed up the front of the hill and the watchmen weren't paying attention. So when he says to them, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, virtually every commentator on the planet says, it's, he's, he's pointing out to, the, uh, to them that, hey, basically your church is resembling the history of your own city. You've fallen asleep and you're failing to watch the enemy trying to attack the gates from the outside. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Otherwise, and this is where it gets creepy, he says, or I'm going to show up unannounced and I'm going to deal with you. Man. Now, we talked about last week where it's like, you know, if a healthy church would invite Jesus at any point. You want, it's your church. You want to come do any business you want in here. It's yours. Do it, right? That's the healthy response. But you get the sense here that, you know, they're riding on their reputation, on the outward works of vitality as a substitute for actual, vibrant, spirit-filled, set on fire for God faith, the real stuff, the real, the stuff that you see happening in Acts 2 and beyond. Sardis is captured twice in its history while watchmen neglected their duty, became a cautionary tale around the ancient world. It's, it's testified to far beyond the, 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 it's not even mentioned in the Bible, but it is in all sorts of external sources around the area. It's what they were known for. And although Jesus' rebuke identifies no specific exact problem, this congregation appears to be asleep even at death's door. They've got such a bad case of uh, lapsed integrity, lapsed vitality, that Jesus wants to remind them, just like you were caught off guard back then, you're about to be caught off guard again. You are not invincible. You're not invincible. So what does he want them to do? He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, what remains? 
The only real clue we might have is the beginning, how Jesus is introduced. We've found that there's a trend when Jesus is introduced in a particular way, it's kind of foreshadowing. You can tell where he's going. So in this case, Jesus is, uh, is referred to as him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That doesn't mean God has seven spirits. As we talked last week, seven's whole, complete. So Jesus, spirit of God, is one way to read it. And the seven stars uh, symbolizes all angels. So likewise, the, the, uh, the seven spirits thing is a description of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will show up later as uh, the Lamb's seven eyes sent through the earth, chapter 5, verse 6. So in some way, shape, or form, he seems to be saying, wake up and re-surrender yourself to the activity of the Holy Spirit, to the God that controls the angels and and his spirit. You re-surrender yourself. You wake up, and you don't just have a reputation for being alive. Now you are alive. Come alive. Come back to life. So it's an invitation, as terrifying as it can seem. Okay, well, if you decide you want to stay dead, then, then I'm going to come move your lampstand. But if you want to come back to life, wake up, strengthen what remains. Yield yourself back to it. The Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, is the lifeblood of the church. The Holy Spirit isn't peripheral. He's central, foundational, the driver of everything, the the wisdom of God alive in the church. Jesus says in John 16 that it's good that he should go, for until he goes, he can't send the Holy Spirit. Think about what that says. It's good that I leave. Why? So the Holy Spirit can come. A common phrase in Revelation is hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus and the Spirit speak with one voice. And the Holy Spirit still speaks. To the churches at Sardis and Laodicea, they're struggling with what many churches still do. A lack of the Holy Spirit's fire. The lack of power that we hear about here in these pages is a demonstration itself of a lack of humility. The Holy Spirit not really being needed, called upon, uh, invited. Not that he needs an invitation. (laughs) But saying, God, I am so desperate for your presence in my life, I'm not going to try the stuff that you've called me to do without you being with me, without your presence. There's no point in it. I'll, I'll fail. I want you. I, mean, I need your presence. I am hungry for it. I am dependent on it. That, that's, that's the heartbeat of a real, alive church and Christian. Dependency on God. Thirst for God. Hunger for God. And it's that that lights the the fire. We got a fireplace in our house, and I've been making wood fires. Uh, don't tell anybody. It's wrong these days, I guess. But man, it makes the house smell good and it provides heat. You can turn the furnace off. So I get up in the morning and I make those fires. But you know, you can't make a fire without something. And and uh, you know, Springsteen said it was a, without a spark. It takes more than that. You got to have kindling or something like it. 
I like is these little igniter sticks. They're like gigantic matches, basically, and you strike them, and then they burn for about 15 minutes. So you just grab one of those, set it under wood, you're good to go. It's super easy. And so people, I think, think, oh, okay, well, I'll just, you know. Well, here's the thing with that. It goes out after 15 minutes. Ultimately, there has to be a continued source of heat and flame for the fire to keep burning. Now, eventually, it will be the heat created by the burning of the wood itself. So then I go out, and if there's a bed of coals, there doesn't even need to be a flame. I just throw a log on it, and it bursts into flame. Okay? I think what we do sometimes when we go look for uh, so-called revival kinds of things is we settle for the stick instead of the bed of coals. The bed of coals is what God wants us to do. Like, it is the only source of ignition for the church. And it stays all day long. As long as you keep feeding it, it'll keep heating. But if you just say, oh, I'm going to burn one of those sticks and I'm walking away from it, after a while, the stick will go out. The wood's not hot enough. And you will have to go get another stick. There's uh, in the news, you've been reading about this Asbury revival. Um, and it's, I mean, it made front of Fox News and a bunch of other, Washington Post and a bunch of other places. And so I always get, well, what do you think about that? I think it's awesome. Um, they have college students that don't want to leave chapel? <laughs> I mean, at most schools, if you can get them to show up to the chapel, you've done pretty well. So if they don't, you get to a point they don't want to leave, uh, praise God. It's in Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, not really a... a hub of culture. In fact, I thought initially they were probably praying that God would get them out of Wilmore, Kentucky, but it turns out that they've, they've been praying. And I've got friends that have gone in and checked it out just to see what it was. And, 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 and it seems very good and authentic. I've written a little bit more on it on Facebook. You can see my uh, more extended thoughts on that there. Um, but there's another part of it that I think is great. I think the part that draws us to it is the idea that there seems to be a move of the Holy Spirit there, right? Well, the satirical comedy Christian site, the Babylon Bee, in all of their uh, cheekiness, decided to write this headline. Experts discover strange new revival that occurs every Sunday for some reason. And so it's kind of cynical. It's also kind of funny. What they're saying is, they're not taking a cheap shot at Asbury. What they're basically saying is, you know, God offers that to you all the time. To get together with your brothers and sisters and praise God and pray, you know, it's not something that, boy, I wish there was a way I could do that. What do you think we're doing here this morning? Right? You're getting together with God's people and you're singing together and you're praying together and you're lifting God up and everything. It's, it's like, you know, thinking that somehow, okay, well, I'm... You know, well, those, that's fine, but it's a little temporary uh, thing. I, what I really want is an 11-day, you want the matchstick, not the bed of coals, is, is, is what you're saying. And there will be times where God breaks in and does great things, and, and you can, I've been, I've been in church since I was born. I mean, usually multiple services for 47 years, many times three or four, midweek services, Sunday night services, and worship nights, and uh, churches and revivals all over the country. I mean, I've seen, been in church a lot, lot, lot in my life. And they're not all the same, and they're not all on Mount Sinai. Some of them fall flat, some of them. But, but the reason they fall flat usually 
is one of two reasons. Either the leadership's flat or the, the body doesn't prepare itself for that. They don't, they don't come in looking for the Holy Spirit to move. They sashay in. Their arms folded. Saying, oh, well, I, the, God's job here is to make me feel something. What a blasphemy, really, when you think about it. I mean, I think it's wonderful what's going on at Asbury, but I also think that it's vital for us to understand and to remember the wake-up call that we read here in Sardis. Rocks, if you see them in a riverbed, they are the shape they are because water's been running over them for a very long time and just very slowly kind of making them smoother and reshaping the rock. That's the thing you always have to pay attention to as a Christian is, okay, what's, what current is blowing against me right now and how is it shaping me? over time. Who are we becoming? Another cautionary tale. Uh, last May, uh, my wife and I were blessed with a, with, a, with a trip with a bunch of pastors to go to Aruba. Uh, and pastors don't get to go to Aruba very much, so I was like, I'm in. We went, and uh, what people told us is, hey, be careful, it's very windy there. And they were not kidding. It's like Oklahoma on steroids, like, like there's a steady wind of about 25 all the time, and then gusts that go uh, way bigger. So what I thought was funny was while I was sitting in my chair, people would get the floaties out, and they would go sit out in the water, which was very calm, but the wind was blowing, right? So the current would, would, would take them, and a lot of them would get out there, and uh, they would like kind of lean back and fall asleep or kind of lean back and not pay attention, and then you'd watch them as the current took them out to sea and quickly... I mean, a good half mile down the, the current by the time they realized what was happening. And so the aha moment when they woke up and realized what had happened kept me entertained most of the day. I mean, I could sit there and just watch people. They'd get in there, drift out, and off they would go. And then, ah, you know, or whatever. <laughs> it's so fun. So anyways, I, uh, I decided I'm going to go ahead and jump in a floaty myself. And I'm like, okay, well, there's a big current, so I probably won't. Be able to last that long, but I'll, I'll do whatever. So I get out my, my floaty and uh, one of those inner tube things, and I'm, I've got my eye on one dude that uh, looks like he's about to fall victim to the, uh, the, the sweep out. And I'm sitting there, uh, and I'm looking at him, and I'm kind of like, why isn't he moving? He's not moving. Why is he not moving? Everybody else is just... Well, I soon found out it was because I was moving too. Both of us were moving. And I was so busy looking at how he should be moving that I failed to notice I was moving at the same time. You're never going to get where you want to get to as a Christian when your focus is on others. What they're doing wrong. How everybody else should be doing things right. Because the currents that are blowing you this way or that... They require being awake, right? Wake up, he says to Sardis. Wake up. And then it requires, if you're going to not be blown out to sea, some resistance. That's what revelation is. It is a call to the resistance against the currents of the culture that they're in. I got to hustle. Church in Philadelphia is next. A couple of quick notes. We're not going to read, even read the text there because it's pretty basic. He says to them, I commend you for your endurance through persecution. And he says, you've got little power. And what he means by that is they don't have any worldly power. But you have not denied my name. 
That is what Jesus thinks of churches. That's how he evaluates churches. Worldly power versus spirit power. He basically says, I know you don't have any power here on earth and everything like that, but you've got tremendous spiritual power. You're able to endure persecution. And so he loves Philadelphia. They're the only church out of the seven that escapes critique. So bravo, Philadelphia. Keep it up. And then you can juxtapose them with the church that comes next, the church at Laodicea. We're going to camp out here for the rest of the morning. Laodicea, a big, robust urban center. It was a banking center, particularly. Uh, They were known for their medical school and uh, a substance that they helped create there called Phrygian powder, which is used in making salve that would go on the eyes of the blind. It was also a city of immense wealth because it had tremendous manufacturing and clothing and carpets and uh, uh, black wool, things that were very valuable in the day. In fact, they were, so, they were so affluent that when an earthquake took the whole city to the ground in 60 AD, they rebuilt the entire city by themselves with no imperial money. Picture that. Hurricane Katrina happens, and New Orleans tells the government, you know what, we're good, we got plenty. Y'all go focus on something else. That's basically what they did at Laodicea. It leveled the whole city, and they go, you know what, we'll just rebuild it. Caesar, we're good. I mean, they're very self-sufficient. And it was completely rotting away their souls. Jesus tells them this in terms they can understand. He knew they were completely self-sufficient. Except for one thing. Water. It lacked its own water supply. It had to be brought in via aqueduct from either the hot springs to the north or the cold water coming from the mountains to the south. And by the time that it gets to Laodicea, it's always tepid. The water in Laodicea was bad. It didn't just smell bad or something like uh, the water in in Houston or something like that. Um, It was tepid. It was lukewarm. There are things we... Very few drinks I can think of that we like lukewarm. You know, we like ice water or hot coffee or iced tea or hot tea, but we don't like lukewarm tea. We don't typically like lukewarm coffee. Most people don't like lukewarm water either, and neither does Jesus. To him, the taste of the Laodiceans' faith is as crummy as their water. And so to them, he writes his most famous words among the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation 3, 15 to 17. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, you guys, you guys see yourselves completely the wrong way. You think that because you've got all this stuff, you think, you, you think because you've got big houses and, to use our kind of language, our cars and, and stuff, and that you feel like you, can, you, know, you don't need much or whatever, that you're doing fine. I need nothing. He goes, no. He goes, no. You are, and I quote, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I think there are people who fall into the same trap. They think that as long as I'm somewhat Christian, I'm doing fine. 
I, you know, a little bit. It's fine. I got a, I got a good low-grade fever of Christianity in my life at all times. And I make sure that I, I'm a generically good person. And everybody has a good heart. Okay, that isn't biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is hot. Cold is no Christianity. He says, you go in the middle and you're lukewarm. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, you're either for me or against me. You gather to me or you scatter abroad. And I think, um, I think it's something that isn't talked about as much because I think there's a sense that, okay, having a little bit of, a, of Christianity is probably better than having none. And that makes some common sense, but it's not biblical. In biblical terms, that's kind of like not being a Christian at all in the eyes of Jesus. There's no continuum. It's not like the martial arts where you get awarded a, a belt color based on how hard you try or how long you've been in the faith. The question that's asked when you go into the water to be baptized is, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and are you ready to make him Lord of your life? Lord of your life. Lord of your life. Not your hobby. Lord of your life. Lord of your marriage. Lord of your parenting. Lord of your relationships. Lord of your wallet. Lord of your fill in the blank. Lord of everything. And so when he looks, he goes, he goes, your problem is, you guys, because you've had so much wealth and so much prosperity, you think you don't need me. And that makes you wretched, pitiable, blind, poor, and naked. There's a story about a church uh, that once had its uh, day in the sun. Uh, and the headline just said, I, was, I caught it in the newspaper, it said, Converted Church. So I thought, oh, good, they had some conversions at the church. No, it was about a family that had converted a church building into their house. And uh, so I, I read the article with some interest. The realtor showing the house says this, desanctified churches are the number one type of building converted to residential use. Whew. I mean, look, I, you can tell by reading the rest of the article that the issue was they got very... They had their heyday, they built a beautiful building, and they did some great things, and then they took, they kind of went on autopilot, and they never refilled the tank with gas, and they never changed speeds, and they never, they thought they were fine. A lot of people like that, I know. And they charge out of the gates when they become a Christian. Uh, they're like a bull, and China shop is hell, and they're in their wrecking shop. They're just like, you know. And then, like a champagne bottle that bursts at the beginning, it fizzles over time. And I think it's not just 
the cares of this life and, and, and other things that are described in the New Testament. I think it's, it's that um, it's a little bit of hubris that comes from feeling like Christianity kind of comes easy to you. And that when it stops tasting yummy, that you don't want it anymore. And what the church at Philadelphia says to us is quite profound. I mean, Revelation 3 gives us a story of two churches right next to each other. Philadelphia, who was close to God because of their trials. And Laodicea, who had become prideful for lack of them. So here's a question for us. If I was given a choice, which life would I choose? Would I choose closeness to God with trials or a life without trials but distance from God? If those were the two choices, you had to pick one or the other. I, I think that the Bible would say you should pick closeness to God with trials. Because closeness to God matters more than anything else. Distance from God is brutal. And it's where Satan has a field day with people. In Romans 5, it's spoken of this way. Paul writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit strengthens and refines us in times of trial, and he does it by purging us of our selfishness and our moxie. And then he emboldens us through humility and then offers us true strength and true riches. And that's what Jesus offers Laodicea. In exchange for your self-sufficiency and swagger, he says this, uh, Revelation 3, 18 to 20, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. So he's not saying being rich is bad. You're just, you have the illusions of being rich when you're really broke. He says, so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your nakedness, salve to put on your eyes, there's your Laodicean reference, medical school kind of stuff, to uh, put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's an invitation to them to say, you, you guys are, are completely blind to how, who you really are, your current state before God. And I'm offering you the intimacy that comes with a meal with me. I'm knocking at the door, and I want to come in, and I want to eat with you, and you with me. And I'm offering you to swap out all the stuff that's currently holding you back with the real thing. You want to be rich? Great. Forget about that stuff. Take what I'm offering you, gold refined in the fire. Sign up for some trials. Be real Christian and go through what a Christian ought to be going through in the world that is antithetical to the, 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 uh, the life of the kingdom. That's what it means to be rich. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what it means to be rich. Not that your 401k is bursting at the seams. That's what richness looks like. 
So he offers them this gold refined by fire. That's true gold, he says. And he offers it to you as well and to me. His invitation to dine with him is one of the most beautiful texts in all of the Bible. That invitation is one that, once it's read, needs to be decided upon. The question isn't, does Jesus love me? The question is not, does Jesus love our church? It's to ask ourselves, as we consume our fabulous dinners, wherever we may be, is Jesus present or not? Christianity is, if it's anything, about the presence of Jesus, about about his power to redeem, his power to strengthen, his power to overcome, his eternal welcome to those who are with him. And it begins thus with humility. It begins saying, I need you. I need the Spirit's power in my life. I need you, Jesus. Because I'm wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus says, well, come to me. And I will give you true riches. I'll fix those clothes. I'll fix that heart. I'll fix that attitude. I'll fix that family. I'll fix. I can do that. If you open the door. So that's the sound. The sound of a knock at the door. And so we say before God today. Father, where our pride is prominent, Jesus is not. And we repent of that. And we humble ourselves before him, knowing that you know our deeds and our works. And yet, he knows and he invites. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What a beautiful offer. May God bless the hearing of his word. We're going to gather around the table of the Lord now. I'd like to invite uh, the band to come on up and have a time where we simply ask the question, okay, what have I done with the invitation of the Lord? If you didn't get uh, communion, it's available to you on the tables in the back. But as we do, the question is, okay, do I see myself, am I, do I see myself the way that God sees me? Some of you think You're complete trash. You're a waste of skin. That's a lie as well. God says, no, you have worth. You're my child and I love you. And I want to eat with you. And you with me. So the lies can come, the current can blow both ways. But right now as we gather around the table of the Lord, I want to read this text as an offer from Jesus to you. To our church. And to anyone who hears the offer of fellowship with Jesus, true fellowship with Jesus, not the kind by reputation, not the kind that sleepwalks through life, the kind that's awake, the kind that's real, and the kind that he envisions for us every time we call out for him. Let's pray. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What a beautiful promise, Lord. We're grateful for Jesus who makes that offer. And today in our taking of the Lord's Supper, we say, come in. We say yes. And we pray this in his name.